According to His promise, we are looking for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Therefore, beloved, since you look for these things, be diligent to be found by Him in peace, spotless and blameless, and grow in the grace and knowledge of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Join me once again in Philippians chapter 1. We're continuing our recap from uh, Sunday morning. One week ago tonight, we uh, wrapped up the last details out of chapter 4 and officially uh, concluded our verse-by-verse exposition. And so Sunday morning, we started our recap. There was some teasing on Sunday, too, as to how many years the recap was going to last. But I'm uh, so anxious to get into Colossians, I expect it'll be weeks rather than years. But uh, we will uh, go through, especially on chapters 1, 2, and 3, the earlier chapters that it's been a while since we've been in some of the information there. So we'll make sure we're uh, up to speed on everything and then tackle Colossians. Before we get started, let's take a moment for silent prayer, calling upon our Father's faithfulness to teach us the Word of God. Shall we pray? Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the truth of your Word and the blessing we have this evening to assemble together. We thank you for the freedom in our land to have uh, a church such as this with a sign out front, a website, telling the whole world uh, who we are and where we are. We're not in hiding, Father, as many of our brothers and sisters are around the world, and I, I thank you for that. It's a grace provision, and as people are free to come and people are free to not come, Father, I thank you that the brothers and sisters here tonight are hungry for the truth of your word, and so we ask for your faithfulness to shine forth, and that your word would go forth in a powerful way, and I thank you, Father, in Jesus Christ's name, amen. All right, we have a microphone ready to go, so uh, if we have any questions this evening, would you like to take the first 10 minutes or so for questions? We'll start back there on the back row. Also a prayer item, if you would. I have the prototype for what will be the Philippians notebook once the uh, review is complete, so uh, be in prayer for that. Some folks have offered proofreading services, so pray for that, and uh, ask for uh, blessings to get these notebooks out there. All right, yes, sir. This is a, a multi-part question. Okay. And if I'm pronouncing it wrong, please correct me. Um, what's the difference between rabbinical and Levitical? Oh, okay. And when did one cease and the other began? Mm-hmm. And I'm thinking, will Levitical will, will the Levitical priesthood uh, resume uh, in his good timing? Okay. Um, I'll handle those separately. Okay. So the expressions Levitical and rabbinical. Um, yeah, those are different expressions. Uh, Levitical refers to the book of Leviticus, refers to the Aaronic priesthood, A-A-R-O-N, Aaron. So uh, usually it's thought of as the Levitical priesthood because the tribe is Levi. Technically it's the Aaronic priesthood because it's descendants of Aaron that are the priests. And all non-Aaronic Levites are just called Levites. Uh, so Really, that's everything from the Exodus onward would be considered the Levitical priesthood or Levitical uh, considerations. Now, rabbinical refers to the rabbis. And so the rabbis then, the rabbinical, and, and they'll argue back and forth about when it officially started and so forth. But um, essentially, everything changed in Judaism when they didn't have a temple anymore, when they got uh, you know, brought into captivity and then uh, scribes and, and Bible scholars started to come to, to preeminence. And even when they moved back into the land after Persia let them go back to the land, they got to rebuild a temple so uh, for that period of time they had a, priest, a priestly service again. But nevertheless, what started during the captivity 
never stopped. And so uh, what eventually became Pharisees, what eventually became other scribes kind of developed in that time. And so uh, over the course of the centuries then, it, there, were, there were different eras, um, including some, some pairs, there were pairs of, of rabbis uh, that was known as a particular pre-Mishnah era, and then the Mishnah era, the Talmud era, and so forth. So depending on who you're talking to and how they argue about it, some will date the rabbinic era as the second century onward or the first century onward or even the first century BC onward, depending on, on how they're using the terms. So that's what rabbinic is about, the, the opinions of the rabbis. And the opinions of the rabbis started to hold real weight compared to, well, here's what the Torah says, but here's what Rabbi Hillel says about it. Here's what Rabbi Shimei, I'm sorry, Shimei says about it. And so the opinions of the rabbis eventually found their way into the Mishnah and into the Talmud. And so basically what we have today is modern day rabbinic Judaism is the, is the legacy of that. And there was a final part to your question? Oh, about the, after the rapture? Yeah, if the Levitical was going to continue in the uh, rabbinical ceases? I expect most of rabbinical is going to be um, overruled by Jesus Christ. <laughs> I think when he's here, he's going he's gonna to stop a lot of that rabbinic foolishness like, uh, like he, you know, he was pretty much at loggerheads with much of the Pharisees in, in his generation. So yeah, I expect a lot of that will, and, and the Levitical priesthood will re- return. It was called a time of reformation in, in Hebrews. And uh, Ezekiel speaks about one faithful line. During the time of David, they divided out the, the Levitical service into 24 branches, um, if you're familiar with that. And, and David organized the choirs and the music, and he organized all the priestly service among the 24 dominant uh, descendants of, of Aaron. And uh, 16 of them were through Eliezer, 8 of them were through Ithamar. And uh, anyway, David gave structure to all of that. And that continued all the way down to the time of Christ. And so uh, that's a consideration. But one of those strains, the line of Zadok, is particularly highlighted in the book of Ezekiel as as being featured. So they're going to be the featured branch of that Levitical line throughout the whole millennial kingdom. And, And they will have animal sacrifices and the Zadokite priests Will be uh, will be functioning in the millennial temple, so yes, that will be happening again. All right, excellent questions. Appreciate that. Making me want to teach Leviticus again. Well, I'm not going to do that. But Dan Craw is teaching Leviticus in uh, Corpus Christi, and they just wrapped that up and moved on to Numbers. So uh, if you, you can get it off the website, I'm sure if you really want to get it. All right, other questions tonight. All right. Since no one else is raising their hand, Bill will raise his hand again. You had uh, mentioned numbers, and that made me think of this. I remember several years ago I had uh, made a post on Facebook about uh, the logistics of moving uh, all of those people into the promised land. And I had referenced, you know, the millions of people that was moved. uh, And you had shared a paper with me that mentioned thousands and not millions of people. Mm -hmm. Uh, Can you just expound a little bit on that? Oh, absolutely. Yeah, the, the big numbers in numbers. And uh, there have been a lot of books written on it, a lot of uh, journal articles, uh, and it's a legitimate textual question. And so, um, and Titus Kennedy, by the way, he mentioned it when he was here doing his archaeology paper. And he's writing a book on that right now that was supposed to come out in January, and I haven't seen it yet. So when, uh, when that goes into print, I will be the first one to buy a copy and, and, and dig into it. So essentially, um, 
I'll show you the, um, the numbers in Numbers. Because there's a census early in the book of Numbers and then there's a census a generation later in the, in the book of Numbers. And um, I don't think I need those open. All right. And so when they take this census and of everyone 20 years old and up and the princes of each tribe and then they start getting into the numbers. So here we go. Here's a good example. You can pick any of these. Uh, they all work. So here in verse 21, let's go with Reuben. Uh, their numbered men of the tribe of Reuben were 46,500. Okay? And that seems straightforward, you know, because it's nice Arabic numerals and we can add them up and total them and, and so forth. Well, it doesn't work that way in the, in the Hebrew manuscripts, right? They, they didn't have, they had different ways to express the numbers. At different times of their history even, they had different ways to express the numbers. And so uh, if you're looking at the 46,500, you end up with this phrase in the, in the Hebrew, okay? And this is where the discussion comes in because they can be used as numbers or the elef can actually be used as, as a chieftain or as a military commander. And that's what Titus Kennedy argues for. And there have been others through the years. Wenham uh, popularized this view and really wrote comprehensively on it and others did as well. So when you're, when you're looking at these numbers here, um, you're going to have, let me highlight them for you, click that off. So um, because the, the real question centers on this LF right there, that LF, okay? Is that LF a thousand or is that LF a chief? And so what you end up with is you end up, every, every one of these statistical uh, verses says X number of LFs and X number of moed, of meots. There's your meoth. Okay. And so you've got a certain number there. You've got 46. That's the number for 46. 46 LF. And then you have 500. There's your number for 500. Chemosh. And then you've got your meoth right there. And so essentially, I'm not explaining this very well. That's why you've got to read Titus's book. Um, Essentially, it's like if you're writing a check and you don't you you have the spot where you write the numbers and then you have the spot down below where you write out the whole thing. Okay, how many years has it been since you've written a check like that? But uh, so so that's what we're dealing with. And so you're writing you're writing out 46 lf and 500 maoth. Okay, and that pattern gets repeated everywhere else. So with Simeon, it's 59 lf and uh, 300. Uh, Maoth, Maoth, and uh, same thing with uh, with Gad. Same thing with every single one of these. There is a number of the thousands, and then there is a number of the hundreds. Okay. The theory now is is that all of that is not correct. That the number of the thousands shouldn't be thousands. The number of the elafim should be the number of their of their trained warriors, the number of their military commanders, the number of their, what eventually became David's mighty men in the sense of the warrior class of, uh, of ancient Israel. So David's mighty men. So if, if in the case of Judah you have 74 of those mighty men, 74 of those captains, and then they were leading 600 of the volunteer troops, right? 
Remember, they were slaves when they weren't trained military men in Egypt. They didn't have weapons training. They didn't have, you know, they weren't professional soldiers. But in the sense of those captains, those, those chieftains, if you will, uh, they were the ones that really um, led the remainders of them. So that's the theory. And actually, if you follow through on the theory, and some of this comes about because later in Israel's history, when they, came, when they were in Babylon, actually, after Solomon, after in the, in the 6th century B.C., they go to Babylon, and then they change their whole alphabet. And they adopt what you're looking at there on the screen. They adopt the square Aramaic text. And that becomes their alphabet. And so when they come back from Babylon, all of their scrolls, all of their Bibles, all of their, uh, their canon, if you will, gets rewritten from the proto-Canaanitic script to the, to the Aramaic block script. And that's where the issue with the numbers came in. All right, Because they were adapting from one way of writing numbers to a new way of writing numbers. It's like, imagine your whole culture is going to transition from Roman numerals to Arabic numerals. you know. But they're going to do it centuries after anyone stopped using Roman numerals. And they're thinking, well, how do we use those again? What was the C? What was the D? What was the M? You know, and so um, that's kind of what was happening. And so in the process of bringing it over to the Aramaic block script, um, the scribes started copying those numbers in the way that we have them today, in our Bible today, so that there was 45,000, you know. And so what you end up with is you end up with the population of the men, roughly 600,000 men, and then you're estimating five to one once you add in the wives and the children and the servants. And so if you've got 600,000 men, you've really got about three million people, two and a half to three million people that had to walk through the Red Sea on, on dry ground in, in a single night. You know, so which is actually a population movement that would make Disneyland very proud. You know, when they when they're moving people in through their rides and, and different things. So I, now, now, having said all of that, I don't doubt that God is miraculous enough to feed that many people, and that He can walk them through the Red Sea in a single night. Because we don't know, we know that He parted the sea. We just don't know how wide He parted the sea. You know, He could have parted the sea so wide that you know they were walking through a thousand abreast. You know, we just don't know. Um, but I prefer the smaller numbers. I prefer the smaller numbers. I think they're more reasonable archaeologically speaking. I think they're more reasonable biblically speaking. I also think that when you compare these numbers, here's the, the biggest kicker for me is when you compare these numbers, there's another census when the firstborn sons had to be redeemed. The firstborn sons and, and, and shekels had to get paid. You had to pay a price for the firstborn sons. And so then you track those numbers, compare them to these numbers, and go, wait a minute. We got three million people, but we only have a pretty small number of firstborn sons. It just gives you a mathematical average of something insane, like each of these Jewish women must be having 88 kids because they've only got this number of firstborn sons compared to the overall population figures, Okay. And I'm, I'm resting on my numbers. So, but the concept is, is there. When you go with the smaller numbers, when roughly, when you say 70 people went down and 75,000 came out for, you know, uh, 400 years later, if it was only 75,000 that came out in the Exodus, that's a much more reasonable number, particularly with the number of the firstborn sons. Finally, the last thing I'll say on this is the Scripture itself that says that when they go into the land and they conquer, they're going to conquer seven nations. 
each one greater and mightier than you. Right? And so then you start looking at Gergesites, Hivites, Jebusites, all the, all the ites that get conquered. And if all seven of them, if each of those seven is larger than Israel, and if Israel is 600 million, you know, 600,000 men plus women and children, that's impressive because they, they weren't that big. Egypt itself wasn't that big in terms of fielding an army of that size. Um, no one fielded an army of 600,000 until the Assyrians, so hundreds of years later than the Babylonians. It, it was centuries later before an army of that size would be fielded and sent out uh, you know, on the expedition. So anyway, remind me again if you would, shoot me an email and I'm going to follow up with Titus and see if his book's going to be in print anytime soon because I'm, I'm dying to get a copy of that. And I think that's the best explanation is taking each of these LFs as a chieftain, not as a thousand. And so uh, you get 74 chieftains plus uh, 600 of the Maoth of your uh, militia, uh, militia troopies. So, all right, well, enough on that. Thank you. Thank you for that. Otherwise, I'm going to spend the whole hour talking about uh, population numbers. All right. Philippians chapter 1. We started our review on Sunday and um, got through the salutation and got through the first part of the, um, the uh, He Who Began a Good Work in You. This is really marvelous. We divided up the uh, chapter really into a, a salutation followed by three sections. And so those three sections are given these Bible verses. Uh, he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. And that's what I want to finish reviewing here tonight. And then uh, we have the section in verses 12 through 18 centering on uh, uh, my circumstances have turned out for the greater progress of the gospel. And that is such a powerful truth because that keeps us from being slaves to our circumstances. That keeps us from blaming God for putting us in these terrible circumstances and making the excuse for why we didn't do what, uh, what we were supposed to do. And then, of course, the chapter ends in verses 19 through 30 with to live as Christ and to die as gain. And there was a lot of uh, material there. So centering tonight on 3 through 11 um, and centering on a lot of things here. Um, I thank my God and all my remembrance of you, always offering prayer with joy in my every prayer for you all in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now from the first day until now. And so there's a lot to unpack from those verses. Talk about Paul usually begins his letters with a thanksgiving, uh, that thanksgiving and remembrance are primary prayer practices. We want to uh, employ those as well. We want to have a lot of thankfulness in our prayers, a lot of remembrance in our prayers. Different aspects there. It's grounded in uh, God's pattern for remembrance. God's not forgetful but he chooses to remember things. And when he chooses to remember things, that means he chooses to place them in the forefront of his conscious awareness, his, his thinking, his active thinking. And, uh, and I'm thankful because everything we're looking at here containing you know, our awareness uh, is going to have an application Sunday morning when we're in the book of Hebrews. And we talk about what happens when uh, the, the perfect sacrifice of Jesus Christ saves you and cleanses you and, and where you no longer have consciousness of sin. See, in the Old Testament, they were atoned for, they were redeemed, but the sin wasn't removed, it was just covered. And they still had consciousness of sin. In fact, they had a reminder of sin year after year after year 
with the Day of Atonement sacrifices. And so there's a, some of this will be repeated on Sunday when we talk about no longer having consciousness of sin. And, and what a joy it is to forget those things. What a joy it is to drive them from our thinking because God has driven them from His thinking. He doesn't think about our sins anymore. Why would He want to do that? Thinking about our sins means He's got to think about what He did to His Son on the cross. And the Bible says He doesn't do that anymore. That He's taken our sins and He's tied them up in a bag and He's thrown them behind His back as far as the east is from the west. They've plunged into the depths of the sea. That's pretty forgettable, <laughs> right? So God is not bringing our sins back into His the forefront of his thinking. And that's uh, really Zakir and the idea of remembering that we want to be mindful. We want to be mindful of certain things. All right. Prayers are joyful things generated by our doing. Fellowship in the gospel. Fellowship participation in the gospel. From day one. From day one. And he seems to stress that. It's in an emphatic aspect here in verse 5 in view of your participation in the gospel from the first day until now. From the first day even until now. And um, we did a lot of teaching on this. I'm not going to really belabor the points here in the review, but the word for participation is the word for fellowship. It's koinonia. It's fellowship. And we tend to think of fellowship as as eating food and chit-chatting. Right? We have a whole room of this church we call the fellowship hall. What do we do in that room? We eat food and we chit-chat. Right, we talk. But the idea of fellowship means holding things in common, the koina, the koinos, the, the koinoneo, commonality. And fellowship, he, he considers participating in the gospel. There's fellowship. You want to have fellowship? Let's go together and, and engage in ministry somewhere. That's fellowship, see. And so uh, there's a, an impact there. And then day one, when you have that chance to uh, think back and reminisce over uh, the battle scars of days gone by. You know, they had a lot of history together. In the matter of giving and receiving, they sent a gift to Thessalonica. Uh, in the matter of hands-on service, Yodi and Seneca and Clement, they shared Paul's gospel struggle. Uh, hands-on gospel service. What about the night he spent in jail and the jailer got saved? And the other prisoners. What about the demoniac girl? They had a lot of... Uh, things to talk about that God had been faithful in their ministry. How about when Lydia opened her home to Paul's traveling team? Or even when they were praying. They actually were in ministry before they met each other. But they were in ministry together because they didn't realize that while Paul was praying for open doors, they were praying for Bible teachers. And God took these prayers and those prayers and He put them together and brought Paul to, uh, to Philippi. Separate yet parallel pursuits of the will of God. And that's marvelous. Separate yet parallel. Because you may not know who the other person is that's praying for you, and, you may, and they may not know you. But you can be praying ahead of time and for whatever door the Lord opens and then it's marvelous when, uh, when He puts two and two together, they come up with four and they realize that, wow, we've been praying for this for years now. And yeah, God knows that. He's coordinated all these things. It's beyond our capacity to, uh, to coordinate. Alright, tonight boy, I want to review this one. Confident Persuasion confident persuasion. And I, we probably spent six classes on this one point. This slide here probably sat there for six classes uh, because it was such an impact, I think, an emphasis. He says, I am confident of this very thing. I am persuaded of this very thing. And confidence is, is, is vital. Um, we can be confident because God is the one who persuades us. 
And when God persuades us, what more confidence could you ask for? I mean, that's just it. When God persuades you of His will, when God persuades you of His truth, when God persuades you of of Scripture and what Scripture says, then you have been persuaded. And having been persuaded, you can proceed forward in faith. And so really, when you study the verb patho, P-E-I-T-H-O, it's a marvelous term, uh, patho has 52 uses in the New Testament. And I would encourage you to, to not only study them by themselves, but study this word when it comes in tandem with pistuo, when it comes in tandem with believe. Because that then just comes alive in, in very glorious ways. And I'll share many of these here tonight. So you have patho in the active voice and in the passive voice. Persuading or being persuaded or even in the passive voice in the idea of obeying. It's a term for obedience. And then the negative of patho, apatho, if you are unpersuaded. Apatheo in the active voice. Apatheo, Strong's number 544. There's another 14 uses there. So you've got uh, 52 uses of patho, and then you've got 14 uses of the negative, apatheo. And those expressions, especially when they come so close to our verb for faith, our verb for believing with pistuo. It then really comes alive, and I think it teaches us everything we need to know about what does it mean to believe in the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved. What does it mean to believe? What does it mean to walk by faith? Because the Bible is, is totally clear on this, and the world will totally muddle this. <laughs> the world will convince you know, it's, they, the, the critics, the Bible critics, the God-haters, the, uh, the Christian, uh, the people that want to de-Christianize uh, our society, uh, they will put forth that faith is, is, is what you do when you can't reason something clearly, right? And, and it's just sad. You know, a lot of that comes from, you know, ridiculous philosophers of, of bygone eras and so forth. Um, the whole idea here, you don't disconnect your brain when you walk by faith. That faith is grounded in reason. I love William Lane Craig and his organization. It's called Reasonable Faith because it is, there's, there's tons of evidence. And God doesn't expect us to believe nothing. It's not blind faith. That we are commanded to, to worship the Lord our God with our minds, with all your heart, mind, soul, and strength. So think. Think through. Examine the evidence. And based on the evidence and what you're persuaded of, where then will you place your trust? Where then are you going to place your confidence? And that's what pistuo is, is, is the placement of trust or confidence. That's faith. But faith comes having been persuaded. Having been persuaded, see. And these things come out very, very clear. So um, I think if you, if you, yeah, you can look at 241 uses of pistuo. Okay, that'll take you some time. Pistuo is the verb to believe. Pistis is the noun for faith. And so you can look at all those, and you should, but it's a total blessing when you recognize the, the tandem of pistuo with patho, that patho is the prerequisite for pistuo, that, that really, how do you believe anything until you've been persuaded of something, right? It's not, it's not that you can just believe. You don't have faith in faith. You don't, have, you don't believe in believing. You've got to believe in content, in an object, in information, in a person, and ultimately we believe in God because God is the one that's faithful. Right? So I think in some of these uh, they will come out. So let's start with Luke 16 
And uh, we'll see how many of these we can get through tonight. We, we won't take six classes to look at the slide again like we did the first time through. But these are so helpful in my mind when I'm talking to skeptics, when I'm talking to people. And they like to be so prideful too. They say, well, you believe that, but I know this, right? And they, they, they create this false dichotomy as if what they know is more powerful than what I believe. Because what they know is facts and what I believe is just pretend or, or wishful thinking or what I want to be true. As if somehow knowledge was superior to believing. And it's actually a misdefinition of believing. All right, so Luke 16, verses 29 through 31. And uh, this is the rich man and Lazarus. They both died. Lazarus went to Abraham's bosom where he could be comforted. The rich man went to torments. And the one with all the regrets <laughs> is the one that's not saved. Okay. And he, uh, he wants Father Abraham to... Uh, send Lazarus back or get, get word to his brothers. It says in verse 28, I have five brothers in order that he may warn them so they will not also come to this place of torment. But Abraham said, they have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. Let them hear them. In other words, revelation is sufficient. Moses and the prophets, the word of God. If, you, if that doesn't persuade you, what else do you want? Well, I want, I want someone to come back from the dead. That'll persuade them. No, not really. But he said, no, Father Abraham, but if someone goes to them from the dead, they will repent. Nice theory, he's just wrong. And Abraham tells him he's wrong. And really, the New Testament tells us he's wrong because Jesus came back from the dead and how many people don't believe in him? But he said to him, if they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And so here's a passage where we have believing and we have all of these ideas and they're connected with patho to be persuaded. And that's the thing. We want God to do the persuading. That's the Holy Spirit does the persuading. In true evangelism, God does all the work. Uh, He might happen to use us as tools along the way, but the real work of evangelism is done by the Holy Spirit who convicts and the persuasion that takes place. And so there's a persuasion. If they do not listen to Moses and the prophets, they will not be persuaded even if someone rises from the dead. And I can appreciate that. The the reference to the Bible here too is powerful. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. And even if uh, people aren't inclined to to apply faith, uh, the hearing of the Word of God will have power. Those unbelievers are going to be at the wedding this weekend. They're going to hear, uh, I think I've got 40 different Bible, 42 different Bible passages in the wedding ceremony. And they're going to hear about Abraham and Sarah. They're going to hear about Adam and Eve. They're going to hear a whole lot from the Word of God. And that's uh, faith comes by hearing and hearing by the Word of God. All right, how about John 3.36? We're used to John 3 in a lot of places. Because of course, uh, God so loved the world that He gave His only begotten Son that whosoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. Well, what's the persuasion that comes into the common grace before that unbeliever can believe? He's got to be persuaded of a lot of things. He's got to be persuaded that he needs to be saved. He's got to be persuaded that he is a sinner. He's got to be persuaded that he's not as awesome as he thinks he is. That uh, I mean, there's a lot of things that his pride's got to be broken down. And those are some of the works of the Holy Spirit 
before they get to the point of gospel hearing, that work of the Holy Spirit to convict of sin, righteousness, and judgment, the work of the Holy Spirit that prepares, that, that does that persuasion before anyone can believe. All right, and there's other passages here, verse 18, about believing and, uh, and so forth. And when you get to verse 36, because you've got believing and you've got persuading, and that persuading, patho is in the passive when it switches, he who believes in the Son has eternal life, but he who is not persuaded by, in other words, who does not obey the Son, will not see life, but the wrath of God abides on him. John 3.36 has a marvelous tandem there of pistuo and patho, because he who believes and he who does not obey, right? And they're just laid out there as equivalents being contrasted, that believing is obeying or being persuaded, not believing or disbelieving is not being persuaded or resisting the persuasion. So they do go hand in hand. They are legitimate tandem functions. You cannot believe anything you're not persuaded of. That's just a, a necessity of the, of the thought process involved. And so uh, we see it there. How about Acts 14? How about Acts 14? Here's Iconium, Lystra, and Derby. This is the first missionary journey. This is Paul and Barnabas. And um, Timothy is there, but he's not on the team yet because he's just a kid. He's, a, he's an inhabitant of Derby as Paul and Barnabas come through town. So in Iconium, they entered the synagogue of the Jews together and spoke in such a manner that a large number of people believed, both of the Jews and of the Greeks. So here's active faith. And the faith comes in response to the Word of God, the, 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 the preaching of the message. But then verse 2, the Jews who disbelieved, the Jews who disbelieved, that is an active voice word. That, is, that means that they actively are rejecting the gospel. They're choosing not to place their confidence in that message. They disbelieve. See, it's not a neutral thing. It's not as if, well, you know, I just haven't committed yet. I haven't believed yet. I'm still kind of in this, you know, suspended uh, judgment mode where I'm trying to keep an open mind and blah, blah, blah. No, they believe, a certain group believed and a certain group disbelieved. An active rejection of the gospel. And, not content with that, they stirred up the minds of the Gentiles and embittered them against the brethren. Not only do they reject the gospel, they're going to work in hostility against other people from, uh, from hearing it themselves. And it's interesting. So, um, verse 3, they spent a long time there speaking boldly with reliance upon the Lord, who was testifying to the word of His grace, granting that signs and wonders be done by their hands. So God is very graciously, even though a significant segment here has rejected, has disbelieved, has, is hostile, God is still persuading. God is still sending testimony and evidence and signs and miracles and all these things uh, all of which contribute towards the persuasion. You get down to uh, verse 19, uh, and there's more we see here. Uh, the Jews came from Antioch and Iconium, and having won over the crowds as persuasion, 
Having won over the crowds, they stoned Paul and dragged him out of the city, supposing him to be dead. So don't ever lose sight of the fact that while you're busy persuading people of the truth of God's Word, Satan and his minions will be busy persuading people otherwise. So we have a link there. How about chapter 17? Acts 17. More faith, more persuasion here in verses 2 through 4. So you would think after chapter 16, I mean, they got in some hot water by preaching the gospel, right? And they landed in jail. So are they going to try to be, you know, more circumspect in the next town they get to? Are they going to maybe, you know, ease off a bit and kind of play it more carefully? No, they're just emboldened all the more. So they traveled through Amphipolis and Apollonia. They came to Thessalonica where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And according to Paul's custom, he went to them and for three Sabbaths, reasoned with them from the scriptures he wants them to respond he's giving information they should think it through this is logical this is reasoning explaining and giving evidence so there's persuasion here explaining and giving evidence that the christ had to suffer and rise again from the dead and saying this jesus whom i am proclaiming to you is the christ we do the same thing today i find it powerful a little book out there in the in the uh, in the foyer. Take some with you. Take them home. Give them to your friends and family. What are, what are Christmas and Easter all about? Why do we why do we preach a risen Savior? Well, we preach a risen Savior. We've been preaching a risen Savior for the last two thousand years, but it didn't start with His resurrection. They were preaching the risen Savior before He was resurrected, because the prophet said He was going to die. The prophet said He would not be abandoned to Sheol. There were uh, all of this has been proclaimed, and so you can explain. You can give evidence. And say, how does David a thousand years before the cross describe the crucifixion as as accurately as he does? How does Isaiah describe the crucifixion 700 years before the cross as accurately as he does? All right. And so there's testimony, there's evidence. And some of them were persuaded, it says in verse 4. Some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, along with a large number of the God-fearing Greeks and a number of the leading women. And so while uh, we have faith, the verb is pistuo, and, the, and it comes in tandem with this persuasion, the verb is patho, persuasion. Chapter 18 and verse 4. And uh, he gets to Corinth. And uh, by now his team is all scattered. Timothy's back in Thessalonica again. Sylvanus is in uh, Berea. Uh, Luke got left behind in Philippi, evidently, where the we passages disappeared. And now Paul's all by himself getting laughed at in, at Mars Hill in Athens. And he comes into Corinth and he's out of money. He comes to Corinth and he starts tent making to, to raise some funds. And he meets a couple of Jewish people there that were also tent makers. That's a coincidence. And uh, God works these things together. And uh, it says he was reasoning in the synagogue every Sabbath trying to persuade Jews and Greeks. We're giving a message that's entirely reasonable. And uh, our evangelism is should be persuasive. Chapter 19, verses 8 and 9. He entered the synagogue and continued speaking out boldly for three months, reasoning and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some were becoming hardened and disobedient, that is unpersuaded, speaking evil of the way before the people, he withdrew from them and took away the disciples, reasoning daily in the school of Tyrannus. 
And this took the place for two years. And so it's interesting what happens here. If, if they're going to reject the message, you can't force it. Just walk, you know, shake the dust from your feet and move on. Feed the ones that are positive. Teach the ones that want to learn the Word of God. And even, uh, even your critics can still spread the news about you. <laughs> so all who lived in Asia heard the Word of the Lord, both Jews and Greeks. Isn't that something? To be rejected in such a public way that even that news gets spread around. Say, look out for that Paul guy. Okay. <laughs> like you remember when that fella put the beware Pastor Bob and he put all those flyers on, all, on our windshields in the parking lot over the old church building. We got out of church on a Sunday morning, everybody had these flyers on their windshields that said beware of Pastor Bob. Wow, okay. We need to uh, step up our security in the parking lot. <laughs> you know, walk through every now and then, watch the cameras, see who's in the parking lot while we're in church. That's how that got started. All right. <laughs> Chapter 26, Acts 26. This is a fun verse. Paul's on trial, one of his many defenses, and this time he's in front of Agrippa. And uh, King Agrippa, do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Do you pistuo the prophets? Are you utilizing your spiritual life function to place your faith? Do you believe the prophets? I know that you do. Agrippa replied to Paul, in a short time you will persuade me to become a Christian. There's the tandem, pistuo in one verse, patho in the next. These activities go hand in hand so many times. In a short time, it will persuade me to become a Christian. <laughs> so, all right. Paul said, I would wish to God that whether in a short or a long time, not only you, but also all who hear me this day might become such as I am, except for the chains, of course. It'd be great if you could get saved. You don't have to be under arrest. You can get saved. So if you've got a long-term gospel project, you've been witnessing to them off and on, you might just, you know, you don't have to preach to them every time you see them, but every now and then you might just say, hey, uh, you know, so-and-so, yeah, have you gotten saved yet? <laughs> you know, just follow up with them. I've been praying for you this whole time. Have you been gotten saved yet? Been persuaded of the truth of the gospel? Chapter 28, verses 23 and 24. Paul arrives at Rome. He finally, after all the shipwreck and all the other stuff, he finally gets to Rome. He's ready for his appeal before Caesar based upon the fraudulent conviction in, in, uh, in, in Palestine. And, uh, and he gets to Rome and they don't know anything about it. They haven't received any paperwork. They don't know anything about his case. The, nothing's, nothing's gotten there. They say, we don't know who you are or why you're, why you're on trial. Um, that's verse 21. We've neither received letters from Judea concerning you, nor have any of the brethren come here and reported or spoken anything bad about you. But we're glad you're here because we, we want to hear some, some more. We desire to hear from you what your views are for concerning this sect. It is known to us that it is spoken against everywhere. The one thing we know is that uh, we haven't heard any good things about this way that you're, you're proclaiming. So when they set a day for Paul, they came to him at his lodging in large numbers, and he was explaining to them by solemnly testifying about the kingdom of God and trying to persuade them concerning Jesus, both from the law of Moses and from the prophets, from morning until evening. And some were being persuaded by the things spoken, but others would not believe. Isn't that beautiful? Some were being pathoed, persuaded, 
but others would not pistuo, would not believe. And I think it's critical, would not believe. Not could not believe, would not believe. They didn't have an inability to believe. They could have, they just wouldn't, is what the text says there. All right. So all of those are great. How many more? Um, Romans. Romans 2.8. And uh, here's the description of uh, the saved and the lost. Of course, you can't do good unless you uh, are, first of all, good. And then those who are selfishly ambitious and do not obey the truth, but obey unrighteousness, there's wrath and indignation. Those words for obedience are our patho persuasions. Romans 8.38, what will separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus? I am convinced, I am persuaded that neither death nor life nor angels nor principalities nor things present nor things to come nor powers, etc., etc. How do you lose your salvation? I'm persuaded you can't. That's what Paul says here. This is the persuasion that we can embrace. When you have a, a conviction from the Word of God, when the Holy Spirit testifies to your human spirit and you cry out, Abba, Father, no one can, can convince you otherwise. You're persuaded. The conviction of the Scriptures is powerful. You can appreciate that too. Romans 14, 14. I know and am convinced in the Lord. So here's this knowledge that all these scientific types are, are proud of. And am convinced, am, am persuaded by the Lord that nothing is unclean in itself. But to him who thinks anything to be unclean, to him it is unclean. If you suppose that it is, if you've got a, you know, a hang up about something, whatever it is, we all have hang-ups. <laughs> but whatever it might be, maybe it's just something from your past, something from a former church, something from your childhood, something from whatever. And you can't really, you can't point a verse to it. You can't, you just don't like it. All right, well, then there you go. You've got a personal issue there. You think it's unclean. Great, it's unclean. Even if, as Paul says, nothing's unclean. If it's sanctified by the Lord and you can partake in thankfulness if it's meat sacrificed to idols, if it's alcohol in moderation, if it's dancing with your wife or whatever. Talked about dancing this morning um, with uh, Jim Benson. That was kind of fun. Um, but you know, some other people, they, they got a real issue with whatever it is. I worked with a guy that would never go to movie theaters. He thought movie theaters were temples to Satan. They were temples to the, the idolatry of the entertainment industry. And, and, and it was a big conviction of his. And he grew up that way. And his family always had that. And so from his dad to him to now he's passing it on to his kids. And he just had a thing with, with movie theaters, say. Now he would still go to Blockbuster and bring the DVD home and watch it at home because... All right. But his conviction was he did not want to physically be in a temple that was a, a place of uh, a temple. He viewed it as a temple. Okay, fine. You know, I'm not going to mock him for that. I, I disagree with him, but hey, I'm happy there's a believer that's living out the Word of God as he's convicted of it. So wish we had more of him. All right. The faith that you have, have as your own conviction. The faith that you have, have as your own conviction. Romans 15, 14. Concerning you, my brethren, I myself am also convinced, persuaded that you yourselves are full of goodness, filled with all knowledge, able also to admonish one another. We use, these are experiential persuasions we come to all the time. 
You know, if we're training a man for the ministry, when, when are we going to ordain him? When are we going to put him in ministry? Well, that's not going to happen until I'm persuaded that he's ready. There's going to be a subjective persuasion there. That's uh, Paul's describing that there in Romans 15, 14. 2 Corinthians 5, 11. Here's a gospel passage. Here's a, the ministry of reconciliation that we have. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. I think people that are non-evangelistic, that don't have that drive, I, I, I would question whether they know the fear of the Lord. Do they really fear the Lord? Why are they not anxious to give the gospel when, at, at the chances, the opportunities that they have? Knowing the fear of the Lord, we persuade men. But we are made manifest to God, and I hope we are made manifest also in your consciences. But we persuade men. And you'll notice in this persuasion, boy, it comes down and where you're actually begging. You look at verse 18. All these things are from God who reconciled us to himself through Christ and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. There's a, there's a begging that happens when we're reconciling this world. Uh, therefore, we're ambassadors for Christ as though God were making an appeal through us. We beg you on behalf of Christ, be reconciled to God. That's a quite a persuasion if you're begging. All right. So I like that. How about Galatians 5, verse 7 and verse 10? You were running well. Who hindered you from obeying the truth or being persuaded by the truth? Persuasion doesn't stop when you get saved. You keep on getting persuaded day by day in your Christian walk, living the Word of God. This persuasion did not come from him who calls you. Not only is God persuading, but Satan's persuading. Which persuasion are you going to listen to? Well, he says this, he says that. Who am I going to listen to? Who's going to persuade me? Why am I even listening to this guy? I should be listening to God and God alone. And then he says, I have confidence in you in the Lord. I'm persuaded in you, in the Lord, that you will adopt no other view. For the one who is disturbing you will bear his judgment, whoever he is persuasion that happens there of course philippians 1 6 is our verse tonight but it comes back again in verse 14 verse 6 is the confidence i am persuaded that he who began a good work in you will perfect it until the day of christ jesus and then verse 14 most of the brethren trusting in the lord trusting in the lord persuaded by the lord because of my imprisonment have far more courage to speak the word of God without fear. We trust in those persuasions. 2.24, I'm persuaded by the Lord that I myself will be coming to you shortly. 3.3 and 3.4, confidence even in the flesh. We should put no confidence in the flesh. We should be uh, walking by faith. 2 Timothy 1.5 and 1.12, persuaded <laughs> say overkill pastor you persuaded me after the third verse i don't need to see the next 25 of them well okay gotcha some people are more easily persuadable but the sheer weight of scripture i find useful i am mindful of the sincere faith within you which first dwelt in your grandmother lois and your mother eunice and i am sure i am persuaded that it is in you as well. Every confidence in Timothy and his walk of faith because of who his mother and his grandmother were and what their life was like. 
That's a neat way to put that. Verse 12, For this reason I also suffer these things, but I am not ashamed, for I know whom I have believed. That's pistuo. You want to sing it this way next time we sing the hymn? We can substitute pistuo and patho when we're singing that hymn. I know whom I have believed and am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I have entrusted to him against that day. It's a great hymn. See if I can get Molly and Jacob to go with this. We can get them to swap out the words. So he says, uh, I am not ashamed for I know whom I have pistuoed and I am pathoed that he is able to guard what I have entrusted to him until that day. Our faith with God continues to be persuaded by his goodness and his care in our life. Hebrews. Hebrews 6, 9. Beloved, we are convinced, we are persuaded of better things concerning you, things that accompany salvation, though we are speaking in this way. If you never get past the basics, if you never get past the foundational things, if, if all you know is, is uh, that, that Jesus died for your sins and you're going to go to heaven when you die, great, I'm glad you know that, but there's more to know. There's more to learn. There's more to grow in. There's more to, to, uh, to unlock in the the deep things of the Word of God. You know, it's not all just breast milk. You've got to get to solid food. You've got to get to meat in your Christian walk. And uh, we are persuaded, we are convinced of better things concerning you, though we are speaking in this way. Hebrews 13, 17. Obey your leaders. <laughs> Here's a popular one for pastors to preach. All right. But the command... This isn't a cudgel to, to beat up a flock saying, you will obey me. You will respect my authority. It says, be persuaded by your leaders. The verb is patho. So if your pastor is teaching the word of God, be persuaded. Not because your pastor is so smart, because of the word of God. Because the Holy Spirit is communicating the word of God. Obey your leaders and submit to them for they keep watch over your souls as those who will give an account. They're shepherds of souls and they're accountable not to you, they're accountable to Jesus Christ. They're the accountable shepherds. Let them do this with joy and not with groaning. (laughs) All right. Randy Blair emailed me about this verse earlier in the week. He said, don't be a sheep that makes your pastor groan. Be a sheep that makes your pastor have joy. For this would be unprofitable for you. See, he'll still keep shepherding even if he's groaning while he's doing it. He's going to stay faithful. But then you lose your reward. So you might as well make it joyful for him so that he gets his reward and you get your reward. That would be profitable for you. That's verse 17. And then he says, pray for us for we are sure that we have a good conscience. We are persuaded that we have a good conscience desiring to conduct ourselves honorably in all things. So there's the tandem there in verse 17 and verse 18. Finally then, 1 John 3 and verse 9. 1 John 3 and verse 9. Persuasions. These persuasions are so important. 319, I'm sorry, 319. We will know by this that we are of the truth and we will assure our heart, that's persuasion, before Him. In whatever our heart condemns us, for God is greater than our heart and knows all things. And beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, we have confidence before God. What a blessing we have in 
living out our faith, obeying the Word of God and walking before Him, keeping His commandments. It's the persuasion that takes place. All right, well, I think for the rest of this, um, in the three minutes remaining, he who began a good work will perfect it. Perfection is not the beginning. Perfection is the completion, okay? That he who began it will perfect it. Perfection is the conclusion, the purpose. And saving you was not the conclusion. Saving you was the beginning. The telos, the end, the perfection. We'll see this also in Hebrews because law could not perfect. The blood of Christ perfects us. And then the day of Christ Jesus, He will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. The day of Christ Jesus, it is not the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is wrath and judgment and God's dealings with the Gentiles and dealings with Israel and the tribulation. That's the day of the Lord. The day of the Lord is fearsome. The day of Christ is glorious. The day of Christ is wonderful. We embrace it. We look forward to it. The day of Christ is the rapture. That's the day when Christ comes and gathers His bride to Himself. And so um, we talked about this. The day of the Lord, boy, all these Old Testament prophets about the day of the Lord, fire, brimstone, wrath of God, terrible stuff. But the day of Christ is a positive anticipation of being face-to-face with Jesus Christ. The one that we've been espoused to, the one that we're going to marry, waiting for Him to appear day by day. And what a glory that's going to be. All right, well, that's the review here. We'll come back Sunday morning, Lord willing, and rapture pending. I think we'll move on to the greater progress of the gospel. We'll move on to live as Christ, to die as gain. We'll uh, work our way through chapter 1, chapter 2, chapter 3, especially in, uh, in this review. Also remember the wedding this Saturday. So pray for the gospel there that it goes forth Friday and Saturday. A rehearsal dinner the night before and the wedding on Saturday. And I'm told there's going to be a, a whole uh, bushel full of unbelievers that are going to be there. So they need to hear this gospel. Father, I thank you for tonight. I thank you for your truth. I thank you for brothers and sisters that are hungry for the Word of God. I thank you for the book of Philippians, Father. And as excited as I am to move on into Colossians, Father, um, I pray that this review will be helpful and will be a blessing. We'll jog our memories of things that we have learned and uh, have perhaps forgotten. So thank you for the reminders. We give you the praise and the glory, Father, in Jesus Christ's name. Amen.